morning, everybody. How are y'all doing? Okay, how many of you guys have children who started school this past week? Raise your hands. Now do a little whoop whoop, right? This was a good week for us. We survived. We have some time back in our lives, and the children are done attacking one another. Um, my name is Sarah. If I haven't met you, my, I'm one of the pastors here at NCC. I'm pumped that you are with us this week. We are wrapping up this series that we've been doing as a walk through First Peter. I love walks through books of the Bible. I don't know if you're like this at all. But there's something about just walking through and seeing something from beginning to end, especially with a book like this, because it was a letter. It was designed to be read through like this. And so I'm really excited to be sharing with you this morning straight out of 1 Peter. And uh, so if you haven't been here, I wanted to kind of touch bases and just kind of give you where we're at. So the first week, Pastor Aaron shared from 1 Peter about salvation. Um, We received this gospel. Our lives have been changed and transformed, and God is our Savior, right? And then the next week, we talked about sanctification. We're set apart. We are different. We're in a new family now, and God has set us apart from, from others. And then Last week, we got slapped around a little bit with some submission, right? If you were here, uh, we talked about how important it is to submit in our personal lives. We got practical marriage and government and even our bosses and those people who are our supervisors, how important it is to submit to one another. And this week, we're talking about suffering. Do I think my husband plays jokes on me and gives me really hard topics to talk about? Yes, I do, but I don't mind. I like it. I like the research. So this week, we're talking about hope in suffering. And before we turn to this scripture, um, I I, I don't know if you're like this, but when I approach something like this, I kind of really wanted to get into the head of Peter. So Peter is writing this letter to the, the churches who are in what we now know as Turkey, okay? And he has a personal investment in these people. He traveled there, he'd gone, and he'd started some of these churches. He brought some of these people um, into, into connection with Jesus. He preached the gospel to them. And now these new believers, these new churches, are starting to experience persecution. The persecution, the trial that has started in Rome has been flowing outward, and now these people are starting to, to feel that pressure And so Peter's writing to them to encourage them, right, to give them some strength. And immediately I thought of something that I did this year, which is in January, some of you guys know, our son joined the Marine Corps, our oldest son, Josiah, and we are incredibly proud of him. But I didn't know anything, first of all, about the military, and I definitely didn't know anything about the Marine Corps. Um, So it has been a crash course for us. And if you don't know, the first 12 weeks, our Marine Corps boot camp, and there is no phone, There's no phone calls, there's no texting, there's no email. I did not hear my son's voice for 12 weeks. All we could do was write letters. We could write letters and he could write back. And even this was inconsistent sometime, like four weeks after he graduated, we got letters in the mail that he'd never gotten. So it's all inconsistent, right? But all we could do is we're knowing that he's going through the most difficult time in his entire life where he is being dragged down, broken down. They reteach you how to brush your teeth, teach you how to clean a toilet, make you stand in line, make you do put all this stuff. We know he's being physically, spiritually, emotionally pushed. And all we can do is write letters. So what am I writing in my letters? What are all of our kids writing? Josiah, you've got this, dude. You can do this. Remember who you are. You're strong. You can do this. You're not alone. Okay, you are not alone. God is with you. He's going to give you strength. And I can't help but think that's a little bit of how Peter felt. Because he can't rescue these people out of the suffering like I couldn't rescue my son. But he knows he wants to encourage them. And so what is Peter 
write to them. Well, that's what we're going to look into. So grab those Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, please, please, please grab one from one of this under the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. Scripture shapes our lives. It is the only truth we can build our life upon. And so we want to make sure each and every one of us is engaging with Scripture in the church and at home when we're on our own as well. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one, grab your smartphone, Google. We are in 1 Peter chapter 4, all right? And we are going to read through chapters 4 and 5. We've been reading the full book as we go on, so we're going to finish that out today. So just keep that scripture handy, okay? So chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you've suffered physically for Christ, you've finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. There are immorality and lust, feasting, drunkenness, wild parties, terrible worship of idols. Of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember... They will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. So we're going to pause here. Peter's been reminding the people who they are, right? Who they're called to be. That they are part of a new community, a new family. And it's been costing them. It's been costing them something. So he's bookending this letter that he's been writing with this reminder that when we suffer like Jesus... It's worth it. There's a purpose. There's a plan. And so he begins by saying, hey, you've had enough of sin. Sin's had enough of your life. Sin has eaten up enough of your past, enough of your hours and your days. Sure, your friends don't understand you anymore, and people think you're a little bit crazy, and you always end up at church, and people are like, what's up with that now? You're never around Saturday nights. But it's worth it because you're not part of that anymore. You are part of a new family, and it's time to fill your life with something different. It's time to change it up. See, we don't, we don't really live life in a vacuum. Our life is kind of like a vacuum. So this is the best way that, is this like a mom moment because I'm using a vacuum? Um, but this is how I thought of it, right, is this is kind of like our lives when we come to Jesus. Um, we're full of a lot of mess. <laughs> this is full of whatever new kids have taken upstairs, so you know there's crud in here. Um, So we come to Jesus and we're full of all this mess from our past. And when we really want to change, we say, man, God, I'm done with the old. He empties us out, right? He cleans us out better than this is clean. And we pop this back in. But what's going to happen is that we don't live life in the off position. (laughs) We live life on. And if I just leave this here long enough and move it around, what's it going to fill back up with? Same hair and crud and dust and mess that it was full of before. But if I change its environment, if we put it in a place where things are positive and beautiful and they smell good, it's going to fill up with something different, right? And that's what Peter's reminding these people of. Hey, it's time to let go of what was old and fill up your life with something new. Start a new habit. And see, this is is what's hard is until we really understand how sin eats up our lives, how destructive it is, how horrible it is, not just to us, but to our families and our friends and the people who love us, we can never understand or comprehend the depth of God's love and grace for us. Because when I know how bad the mess was, 
then I know how badly I need Jesus. But if I think that I only sinned a little, I think I only need a little forgiveness. Um, and it's not about ranking sin. It's not like, oh, this sin is worse than another. It's the recognition that any sin is too much. Any sin is too much. Because it's costly in our lives. It costs us. And it costs the people around us. I like to think of it like this, because I'm a very practical bullet point person, okay? Uh, we have 168 hours every week. There's an author I love, she wrote a book with the same title, 168 hours, and she's saying, hey, each and every one of us starts out every week with the same slate. We have 168 hours to invest how we want. And we can go around saying, I wish I had time for the gym, I wish I had time to read to my kids, I wish I had time to read the Bible, and say we're too busy, but that's not true. We're just spending our time elsewhere. So when you start to track it and you look at it, you see, hey, little things add up to big things, right? Well, this principle applies to the same thing here when we're wanting to start something new, we're wanting to fill our lives with good things. So think of it in this way, okay? You're supposed to brush your teeth twice a day. If you didn't know that, you learned something today. You're welcome. Dentists really want you to brush like three times a day, but two times is the minimum, right? And you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes every time you brush your teeth. And so now there's like all these toothbrushes with two-minute timers because we really have no concept of how long two minutes is. Every time I'm brushing my teeth with mine, I'm like, this has got to be longer than two minutes. It feels so long. But that's how long we're supposed to brush. So let's say you're a good, obedient patient, and you brush your teeth twice a day for two minutes each time, four minutes a day, right? Over a year, you have spent 24 hours brushing your teeth. That's a crazy thing to think of, okay? 24 full hours brushing your teeth. But it's a good habit, so it's worth it right? I mean, we, yes, you're supposed to say yes. We want to be brushing our teeth. <laughs> your neighbor is like, yeah, <laughs> brush your teeth. Same goes, so let's say you watch TV, like, let's go real minimum, 30 minutes, five days a week. You say you only watch TV on weeknights, 30 minutes is even a normal TV show, we're going to be nice. So say you watch TV 30 minutes, five times a week. You want to know what that adds up to you? Over five days over a year, five solid 24-hour periods watching TV. Now, I'm not anti-TV, I love TV, but you're seeing this principle, right? Little things build up and add up to big things. Five minutes of reading your Bible a day adds up to over a day, about 30 hours of reading Scripture. Double that and you see what that does. So these little, little things, this is how we refill. This is how we shift. We change gears. We let go of the old. We move into the new. Just start small. And Peter says, start with learning to love. This could take you the rest of your life. Start with learning to love. Let's move on to verse 6. He says, that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. The end of the world is coming soon. So be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, so Turn on those ears. Continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies? Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. I love how Peter can't keep himself from praising Jesus at the end of each of these. So Peter begins this passage with a kind of cryptic verse about preaching the gospel to the dead, 
I'm going to talk about that in a sec, so just keep your finger on that one. But in verse 7, he says, the world is coming to an end. Now, this sounds very ominous, but um, the word end here actually doesn't mean like a big explosion of everything you know and love. It actually means like an end point, as in the end of a destination, completion. So he's saying this world that we're in, it's not going to be like this forever. It's changing. We're on a journey toward the way that God really wants the world to be. And this is really important because this gives us an eternal perspective that allows us to actually love as God wants us to love, right? Because when we know, hey, everything I see is not all there is, I'm able to see the world through a different perspective. And love here, it's not... Uh, phileo love. If you're familiar with love in the Bible, it's so great. If not, go do word study. There's four Greek words for love in the New Testament. And one is phileo, and that's one we talk about a lot because it's like a friendship, an affectionate love. Um, it's the love that um, Jesus showed when he wept at Lazarus's tomb, and people are like, look how much he loved him. That's phileo love. That's not the love that Peter is talking about here. He's using agape love, which is the kind of love God gives us. Agape can actually be translated feast of love, as in it never ends. It goes on and on and on. There's no limit to this kind of love. And this is the kind of love Peter's telling us to give the people that are, we are in fellowship with in the church. Imagine a life that's led by this kind of love. Just imagine it with me. Okay, you're not controlled by uh, tension or by what people think of you. You're not controlled by any kind of conflict that you're trying to avoid. What people say or do to you, it can go right over you because you have an eternal perspective and recognize that the love that I have, there is no end to it. This is a life of peace. This is a life we all really want, right? We all want to live a life that's peaceful, that's not controlled by the external circumstances. The problem is we want to receive this kind of love. We don't want to give this kind of love. But the way to a life of peace is actually through the giving. That's how we get to the other side, is by giving this never-ending love that doesn't depend upon how well-deserving the person is that's receiving it. We just give it anyway, the kind of way that God gives us love. I love this because uh, I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never studied him, I'd probably bring him up almost every message because he's one of my favorite theologians. He was killed in a concentration camp in World War II. And he had this incredible perspective on the church and on God. And he says this, community is not something attained, but created through the mutual love and respect of its members. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Look around. These people that you come and meet with every single week, this is your community. These are people you're designed to love, to live life with. They're your lifeline. When we go through suffering, when we go through difficult times, this is our family. These are the people we're designed to live life with. These are the people we're designed to lay our lives on the line for. In fact, Peter goes on further in saying that gifts are not something that are meant for our own enjoyment, although we love that. Your gifts that you have, they're not from your parents, they're not from that leadership seminar your boss made you go to last year. The gifts you have are actually given to you by God with a purpose to serve one another. 
The gifts you're given are created to serve one another. I love this. The word gift is charisma. We love the word charisma, but it might mean something different than you think. It means a divine gratuity, a divine tip that is deliverance from danger. What? How cool is that? A spiritual endowment, a miraculous gift. That's what you have. Each and every one of us, our gifts are something that are given as a protection to the people around us, as a service to the people around us. It's not just about coming and patting ourselves on the back and saying, look how good I am. It's a gift to the people around us to create community. So why sometimes does following Jesus feel hard? Honestly, because I think sometimes we treat church like it's our favorite restaurant. We come as long as we're getting something, and when they cut our favorite thing from the menu, we go to find another church to go to five times a year. But church is not a buffet. I would like to say church is a potluck. Okay, does anyone remember old school church potlucks? When like Esther brings her famous peach cobbler, and that's the kind of church we're supposed to have. We each bring whatever we have, small or big. If you're like Gordon Ramsay level beef Wellington, or you're like frozen pigs in a blanket I shove in the microwave, we bring what we have and we give it to the benefit of the family. That's how church is designed to be. We bring and we give and we serve and we love, and that's how we get the kind of community that we're all really looking for. So when you look around here, if you don't feel connected, I would posit that you probably are not serving. You're probably not using your gifts to serve the people around you because that's how we create the community we want. You see, it's not something we attain, like we just get there one day. It's something we all create together. And if you love the people around you, you're going to create community everywhere you go. You're going to have a community to fall back on. Love, 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 love your church. Moving on, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening. Instead, be glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed because the glorious spirit of God rests on you. If you suffer, though, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. How funny that's listed here. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who will never have obeyed God's good news and also, if the righteous barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Suffering has this really amazing power in our lives. When I thought of this, I thought immediately of a couple of years ago, our son Jaron, he got really sick out of nowhere on a Sunday, because it always happens that way for pastors. And uh, I'm home, Easter's coming up, we're like in the throes of busyness, and I'm in workout clothes and cleaning the house, and I go from that to two hours later being transferred by ambulance to Children's Hospital, and our care kid's about to die. And about two o'clock in the morning, when I'm standing out in this hallway, walking and praying, and Jaron's in this room, being poked and prodded and speaking in delirious terms because he doesn't know where he is, I wasn't thinking about Easter. 
I hadn't showered. I never ate that day. I didn't care. All I cared about was what was going to happen to my son. That's what suffering does. Suffering has this way of sweeping away all the things that don't matter and helping us to focus on what is most important in our lives. Has this happened to you before? I mean, if not, talk to a parent who's had a kid who had cancer. Talk to somebody who survived a car wreck and barely made it out. Talk to somebody who survived a heart attack, had to drastically change their life after that. It does something to us. I, I love, N.T. Wright says, suffering brings about a particular transformation of character. It makes you reevaluate your whole life. In the the beauty of suffering, which I realize we don't necessarily put those words together, but the beauty of suffering is it does something within us we could never do on our own, you guys. We could never do, it, do this. It, it does something that only God can do inside of us because when we are weak, then he is strong and he strips away all the stuff that doesn't matter and he recalibrates us and refocuses us on what is most important. Now, Peter does draw a distinction here. You noticed it. He says, now, hold on a second. If you're suffering because of your sin and your mistakes, that's not what I'm talking about. There's a difference between consequences for your mess and the fiery trials that I'm addressing here. In fact, the fiery trials actually is a word that's used to describe metal when it goes through fire and comes out pure. That's what he's addressing here. Because we become more like Jesus when we suffer like Jesus. We become more like him when we're trying to bring love and truth and grace and beauty into the world and we suffer because of it. That's why he's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Remember who you signed on to follow. This isn't, this isn't about a Facebook rant. This is not about you going on Facebook and posting your opinion about something and then when people tear you up, you're like, look how persecuted I am. Yeah. No, Peter's saying very clearly here, judgment begins in God's house. In other words, it starts with us. We set the example for the world and how to love and how to serve and how to bring grace. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like. But here's, here's what Peter is saying. Remember how I told you about that verse, verse 6, and I said, hold on to it, because we're going to address that in a second, where Peter talks about preaching the gospel to the dead. Theologians don't ever agree wholeheartedly on what that means, but they do agree on one thing. They say, Peter is reminding people Death is not the end, okay? The hope you have is an eternal hope that no one can take from you. And so he's saying, hey, when you're persecuted and people are standing over you saying, where's your God now? Where's your hope now? What's God doing? You have a hope that outlasts, and they can't see that. And here's what, here's what I love is, so I love Marvel movies. I don't know if any of Marvel fans in here. Our house, we love Marvel movies. I, I like, thank you, I like movies where things turn out great at the end. So if you love a movie that has like some kind of weird, sad ending, don't tell me about it. Um, if Aaron and I, this is an admission, babe, I love you, please forgive me. Um, but if we're watching something and it gets really intense and I like can't handle it, I Google it to see how it ends. <laughs> because I, I can't handle the tension, and I just want to know that everything's going to be okay in the end. And even if it's like a season away that they're going to end up together and everything's going to be okay, then I survive. This is what Peter's saying. Listen, you can't lose. No matter how bad things look, you have already won. Jesus has already healed you. He's already taken care of everything. In the end, no matter how bad things look, 
you win. You win. And that's what he's reminding them. Remember the eternal focus. Nobody can take that away from you. If you cling to Jesus, if you stay strong in the faith, you cannot lose. Moving on. He starts to to bring this around to a close in chapter 5. So we're going to go on to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, And now a word to you who are elders in churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in his glory when he's revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Now, lest you all point to Pastor Aaron and say, did you hear that? This is actually designed and aimed at the people who are mature believers. So when he's saying elder, he's like, those of you who are leaders, those of you who are pastors, those of you who are shepherds, those of you who are mature believers who are leading other people, here's what I have to say to you. Lead by example. Take care of the people who are entrusted to your care. So if you're a leader in any way, okay, if you are a parent, if you run a business, if you have anyone who reports to you at all, this is for you. The job of mature leaders is to serve. The job of mature leaders is to serve those that they lead. Now, the way of the world is to, like, boss and use fear and control and manipulation. That's not leadership. And listen, you can get people to obey you, but you will never get people to follow you like that, ever. People follow people who serve them. People follow people who serve them. True strength is what Jesus showed us so clearly in his character. It's found in humble service, humbly serving the people God entrusts to our care. Then he moves on to the younger, and he says in verse 5, In the same way you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. So again, young spiritually, not necessarily by age. So newer to the faith, younger spiritually, he says, dress yourself in humility. Accept authority. Oh, those are not words we like to hear. Aaron told us last week, we don't like people telling us what to do, right? But Peter, he kind of draws this interesting parallel in that suffering and submission go together. There's something there. And if you notice... We, we want to be saved sometimes from the suffering without the submission. That's not how it works. He's saying, no, we're, we're saved through the submission. Through the submission. You want to grow as a young believer? Listen. Learn. Get around people and listen to what they tell you to do. If we can't submit to human authority, there's no way we're going to submit to God's authority. And listen, pride is like the worst characteristic any person can have. It's the original sin, right? It's what led to the sin in the garden. I describe pride as, I've got this. I've got it. got it all under control. I know better. And listen, God opposes the pride. I don't want God against me. I want God on my side. So I want pride to be the last thing in my life. I want to be humble. You didn't end up at this altar. None of us did because we knew what we were doing. <laughs> We ended up giving our lives to Jesus because we're a mess. That's what we do. We make messes, 
okay? And we need people, every single one of us. We need each other. We need each other to grow. Be teachable. Learn. Be humble. Don't act like you have it all together. Anybody who acts like they have it all together is lying. Moving on, verse 8. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he'll restore support and strengthen you and place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. Peter says, remember who your enemy is. He's reminding the people in the church, the people who are persecuting you, that's actually not your enemy. Now imagine how difficult that would be. It'd be so easy to demonize people who are tearing people out of their homes, setting them on fire, putting them in prison just because they believe in Jesus. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. That's actually not your enemy. You actually do have a real enemy. And, and I know it's hard. Uh, quite often in our culture, we respond one of two ways to the enemy, to Satan, to talk about the devil. We either over-attribute to him, like, everything bad that's happening is just from the devil, or we think, yeah, I'm cool with God, but not cool with the whole devil thing. We'll leave that to the side. This is, this is what's dangerous about this, though, is when we dismiss the devil, we also dismiss God, because God teaches us that the devil is real, that you do have a real enemy. He's an accuser, and he's after you, and he has a plan for you. So that's reality, that's truth. And when we dismiss the devil and we end up dismissing God, what happens is we become God and our enemies become the devil. So no wonder everybody around us is tearing each other apart because we're all walking around like little gods who have our lives under our own control. And anybody who threatens our views or tells us that we're wrong is the devil now. But that's not how we behave, you guys. That is not how the church sees it. And that's why this is probably the one big perspective that makes the whole rest of the book happen. If you can remember that eternal perspective, the people you deal with are not the enemy. There is a real enemy. When we recognize, okay, that Satan is the one behind racism and shootings and all of the mess that happens on Facebook and temptation and everything evil in the world, then we can start to see things a little bit differently because we belittle what we don't understand. Okay, we belittle what we don't understand. But when we understand that the devil is what is behind all that mess, then we can see, I know why you're behaving that way. I know why you're talking like that. I know now why people act the way they do. And I don't have to see them as the enemy. I can love them as the created children of God they are because I know who the real enemy is behind what's going on. We're to stand firm against the devil, not against other people. Be very, very clear about that. And we're to stand together. We cannot do this alone. If you are going through temptation or difficulty, you cannot do it alone. This Bible tells you over and over again. This book tells you over and over again. Look around. This is your lifeline. We have to link arms and stand together. Closing it up in verse 12, he says, I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you're experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. So stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. 
Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. He wraps this up by reminding them, hey, what you're experiencing, I know it's hard, but it really is the grace of God in your life. You're going the right way. Don't give up. Don't give up. And you guys, when, you know, sometimes when we follow Jesus, when we come to this altar and we choose to follow Jesus, honestly, sometimes it feels like we're joining a club. But we're not joining a club. We're choosing to follow someone who allowed himself to be brutally murdered in public by people who were only living because of the breath he gave them. That's our leader. If we follow him, we can't be surprised that he asks us to love people who are difficult. Anybody can love people who love them. We as the church are designed to love people who seem unlovable because we know who the real enemy is and we have an eternal perspective. God's not looking at you and he's not like, man, your life's too cushy. I wonder if I can make you uncomfortable, change things up. He's looking at you and saying, how can I make you look like me? How can I give the world more Jesus? Because that's what it needs. It needs more Jesus. And y'all, if that's what it's going to cost, each and every one of us is laying our lives down on the line so this mess out here stops, let's do it. Man, take whatever you have to Jesus from me because I don't want this world. I want to be hope. I want to be light. I want to be salt. I want to be different. I want to live like Jesus. And if you want to live like Jesus, it may get hard. But I promise you, you're, you're never going to do it alone. My mentor, she says this, the enemy's goal in our lives is not pain, it's distance. Distance from God and distance from the people around you. And so to that end, he can use pain or he can use pleasure. Pain is not the enemy. Suffering is not the enemy. Those are just tools. Those are just things we've got to go through. And we're going to go through them either way, right? The choice is whether we go through them with Jesus or we try to do it on our own.